What is one word a disciple should never say to Jesus? No. Wow. Okay. Sermon's over. <laughs> I guess there are no surprises here. No. The, the, the worst word we can say to Jesus is no. Now, the Psalms, the Psalms have all kinds of startling things to say to God, don't they? If you've read all, in fact, we did a psalm tonight, you usually wouldn't pray in church because it addresses his anger and this great insecurity about the shortness of our life. And usually we want psalms that are more happy clappy, like God is so good and he provides. And um, but like the psalms can say hard things, but but there's other psalms where the, the prayer says really hard things to God. And man, the psalms get away with saying a lot and they're never corrected. There is a lot that we can pour out before God, but there's one word we shouldn't say to him. We shouldn't say no. We can question and we can wonder, but we shouldn't say no to him because he knows what we need and he's doing good for us. But we like the word no. Look at a toddler. Toddlers have a very small vocabulary and they learn a very small word. No! We like the word no because no establishes agency. It establishes free agency for ourselves. If I can say no to someone, then I can establish freedom for myself. I don't have to do your bidding or what you want. But here's the problem. No doesn't actually free us in the spiritual realm at all if we say it to God. No does the complete opposite. Because when we say no to Jesus... We deny that he can meet our deepest needs. When we say no to Jesus, we deny his ability to reach our deepest needs. And sometimes we don't want him to reach our deepest needs. It's, it's down in there. And I'm not even sure what's going to come up if he reaches in there. And we're terrified of that. So what we prefer is... Yes, Jesus, up to this point, fix my surface needs. I just want to get a general feeling of I can bear with life and get through this. But our deepest needs, I don't know that I want you to meet those. That's perhaps what we say if we do believe that he can. It's just like we don't want him to. Well, tonight, Matthew um, 9, um, we're going to see three, three words or three themes, I should say, coming out of these three stories. There's great devotion, there's vision, and there's mission. We're going to see devotion, vision, and mission. We're in the last three of nine miracle stories that Matthew is telling. You may remember we spent, what, months in the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end, it says he comes down. Uh, everyone marveled that he spoke with such great authority. So we, we heard the authority of his word. Now Matthew 8 and 9 shows us the authority of his works, his miracles, his ability to have authority over things like creation and human beings and demonic spirits and even death. Um, so Matthew does this three episodes in chapter 8 verse 1. You see the leper is healed. The Canaanite's servant, I'm sorry, the uh, 
The centurion's servant is healed. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And then he brings us this question about discipleship. What does a disciple look like? The next three miracle stories... Um, we see Jesus calms the storm. He heals the two men with the demons. He heals the paralytic. And then he calls Matthew. And we get reflections on what does it mean to be a disciple? Um, even though, yeah, what does it mean to be a disciple? And then the last three of these nine come tonight. We read the raising of the ruler's daughter who has died. We see the woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years. That Both of those two miracles but it's one story. So that's one story. Um, so he's, Matthew's kind of ending with a bunch of d- couplets. You'll notice like two women healed in one story. Whoa, this is getting really cool. And then the second story is the two men. Two women, two men are healed of their blindness. And then the third story is um, that the, the, the mute demoniac is healed. But what we get is two reactions to the healing. People marvel and people criticize. So those are the final three healing stories. And then we get the call to discipleship, the ultimate call at the end. There's a harvest. I need laborers. Pray that you may be part of the mission. So that's the cycle that we're in. Um, So Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus can do what others can't. What we've seen in the first six miracle stories is that Jesus reaches out to those who nobody would touch, right? A leper, you're not going to touch that person. Um, the demoniacs, the, the paralytic, like we saw all these outsiders, the centurion. Uh, we see these outsiders who Jesus is willing to reach out to that nobody else would. What we're going to see in these final three stories is that Jesus reaches down to those whom nobody could reach down. The first set, nobody wanted to, so Jesus reaches out. The last set, nobody can, but Jesus will reach down into the muck and pull these people up. He's their deliverer. So, um, the question then, as we look at our deliverer, do you believe that Jesus can meet your deepest needs? Do you believe he wants to heal your deepest hurts? So, verse 18, we have the ruler. Um, now, I want you guys to notice, we bring, a lot of, um, we bring a lot of presuppositions to Matthew's text with this story of the ruler. Because who's, what's this ruler's name? Anybody know his name? Jairus. Yeah, Jair, I usually say Jairus. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but yeah. Jairus, Jairus. Matthew doesn't give us his name. We know he's a ruler of a synagogue. Well, no, Matthew doesn't say that. We know that from other Gospels. Matthew is very direct in these stories. In fact, he writes these stories far shorter than any other Gospels. Um, and you'll notice that we don't want to bring, if we're going to let Matthew speak, we're just going to look at what he says. We're not going to bring the name, ruler of a synagogue. We're just going to let the text say what it says. There's other things about the woman touching his garment. Like, we don't see any period where Jesus turns around and goes, who touched me? And, and Peter's like, what do you mean who touched you? Like, man, I've been jabbed in the ribs 17 times, especially by James. Like, we don't see any, I added that part, by the way, it's not in any of the Gospels. Um, but we see none of that, like, dialogue. Um, and then she's like, no, I felt power go through me. None of that. Just the woman reaches out, Jesus turns around, your faith has made you well. So it's very sparse, and we're going to let Matthew do what he does. So we see the ruler, and we see devotion in this ruler. 
There's great devotion in him because notice what Matthew says. Matthew says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt. The word knelt is proskuneo. It's, it literally means to prostrate oneself. That's when you go down on your knees and then onto your face. That's what he's doing before Jesus. That's desperation. It's ultimate worship to lower yourself before someone. So he came and proskuneoed before him saying, my daughter has just died. So reading Matthew in the way he wants to coach the church, this girl is dead. She hasn't yet died in the other gospels. So I just, I'm pointing this out because sometimes we come to it and we kind of bring in the stuff we already know. In Matthew's story, she is dead. There's no moment of, oh, don't disturb the teacher. She's now dead. No, she is dead. This shows us this ruler's devotion. He, she is dead. He knows this. She's dead and yet he comes to Jesus. He's not coming to him in hopes that maybe you'll spare her. He's coming because she's died. This is great devotion. This is, in other words, devotedness. This is what disciples are. They are devoted to Jesus in all circumstances. And so he comes and says, my daughter has died, but this is where he sees devotion. She has died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. What a statement. We often stop right there. She died. I want to give up. I don't know if God's good anymore. I don't know if I should go on with life anymore. I don't know if the things I'm doing matter. It, it's dead. I'm, th- everything's just dead. Where's the but? A devoted disciple says, but if you come, it will live. They will live. I will live. She will live. And so in response to this, we've seen Matthew say over and over, so-and-so followed Jesus. The reverse happens here. And Jesus rose and followed him. It's really startling when you think about how many times Matthew says they followed Jesus and how Jesus is following someone else. No, Jesus does not become his disciple. But what it does show us is that such devotion always brings Jesus in our wake. I wonder how many times his grace is unfolding before us. He's wanting to help us do things, lead us through things, take us by the hand and make us live. And yet we're the ones to say, oh, but it's all dead. There's no hope. And he's saying, just take two steps toward me. Just come and say, but if you will come, because I will come in a heartbeat. I will follow you into your deepest pain. I will go with you there. But we often don't pray like this ruler prayed. And so we see the significant statement that Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now, while this is happening, the woman comes. We'll address her in a second. I want to stick with the ruler. Um, so we go then to his house, verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he went and took her by the hand and she arose. So there's a commotion. Um, this is not a commotion of just like people are just loud and 
cackling and gossiping and swapping stories. No, no, no. The commotion here is very specific. Every Jew was expected, it was actually required of them to hire flute players and professional women mourners when somebody died. It was required that even the poor hire at least two flute players and one mourner. So this guy is a ruler. He's obviously got more than that. There's a great commotion. The flute players are playing music that people can lament to, and the professional women are beating their breasts and shrieking. It's it's meant to just really bring the feeling of death. She's gone. Feel it. Accept it. Don't live in denial. This is it. We're going to bury her today because they buried people the very day they died. Um, This is the commotion Jesus walks into. And it's not until they are put out that he goes in and raises the daughter. It's not until they are put out that he goes into her and gives her life. And I need us to, I need us to understand this here. That the commotion is the soundtrack of death. He walks in, we walk into parties or churches or homes and there can be music playing, right? There's a soundtrack. You go to a stadium, you go to a concert, there's a soundtrack. A movie has a soundtrack. It's this, it's this theme, this musical element that brings feeling and kind of drives, drives whatever's going on. Here's a soundtrack of death in the house. And Jesus is saying, I cannot raise the dead where we are going to listen to the soundtrack of death. If we're going to keep this beat going in our hearts and in our ears, there will be no resurrection in this heart. And we must understand what commotions we are surrounding ourselves with. These commotions that are not of God may very well be the commotion of death, the soundtrack of the dying. What, what is the soundtrack of our lives? This is the commotion that must be put out if we want to hear Jesus, if we want him to come in and raise the death of our hearts. Now, when he says, um, go away for the girl's not dead but sleeping, and they laugh at him, a lot of people say, well, he's using a metaphor. Death is like sleeping. But that doesn't make sense at all if you think about it. If sleeping is a metaphor for death, then you should be able to read this with the word death in place of sleep and listen to how it sounds. Um, go away for the girl is not dead but dead. Right? It doesn't make sense as a metaphor. What Jesus is doing instead is he's giving a message that this is what death is like sleep. Now that I'm here, death is like sleep. I don't mean, you know, we're not going to like a doctrine of like soul sleep or something. We mean that when the giver of life comes to earth, death now takes on a completely different nature. So here's how some of our ancient friends, all the way as present as Matthew Henry, um, this is what some of them say. This is Ambrose of Milan, the guy who brought, who discipled Constantine. Ambrose said, where faith in the resurrection is present, we do not have a species of death, but of resting. Jerome said, she is not dead, but sleeps because to God, all things live. John Chrysostom said, in truth, when he had come, death was was from that time forward just asleep. And Matthew Henry said, sleep is a short death 
and death a tiny sleep. In other words, in the presence of Jesus, death is like a sleep because he's going to call his people out of death. He has defeated death. In fact, I wanted to read one more. This is a little longer, but Athanasius of Alexandria. Uh, some of the students are reading that. Some of you have read it in this church. On the incarnation, he says that Christians have a different attitude toward death. And this is how he puts it. Um, a very strong proof of this destruction of death and its conquest by the cross is supplied by a present fact, namely this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offensive against it, and instead of fearing it, by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as on something dead. Death is dead. I love that. Before the divine sojourn of the Savior, even the holiest of men were afraid of death. Think about how David often prayed in the Psalms, like, I'm on the brink of shoal, save me. And mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. But all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the, through the resurrection. But the devil who of old wickedly exalted in death now that the pains of death are loosed, he alone it is who remains truly dead. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Because the only one who's truly dead is the devil because he's bound to his own tyranny of death. I love that viewpoint. And brothers and sisters, Christ wants to raise the death within us and we have nothing to fear going forward because there is no death for the Christian. So, um, Christ shows that, kicks out the commotion. We must kick out the commotion from our ear as well. <clears throat> now, looking at the woman who reached out and touched his mantle, um, she has devotion too. I need you to consider the great devotion she has because she had a lot of discouragement against her. Okay, so it says that she had an issue of blood. Um, what that means a discharge of blood for 12 years. Um, we don't have to go too deep into details, but ladies, you could imagine what this is like. I can't. She's on her menstrual period without stopping. So it's not really even a period. It's just a 12-year-old menstrual, like, it just keeps going. That's, that's not only inconvenient, highly inconvenient, um, you can imagine how much energy she's losing through that too. Just the, the emotions that just come with that. But the law of Israel said that if you are, if, if, if it's during that time, you are unclean. You cannot be touched or approached by people. You cannot approach or touch people. So for 12 years, she's living in isolation, which explains why she comes out and tries to come behind Jesus and says, if only I can touch the edge of his garment. If only. See, she's actually being completely respectful to Jesus. She doesn't want to come in front of him and make him realize, oh my goodness, I'm unclean. I came in front of this woman. Because he doesn't, she doesn't know how Jesus operates. But she was trying to do a respectful thing by coming behind him and hoping he would never know that she touched him. So that he could go on and be a teacher. Um, 
but see the discouragement in her life, just what she's going through. And then the thought of how overwhelming and exhausting it would be to go out into the people. And the people, I could be endangering all the people. There are a hundred reasons, the crowd, a hundred reasons for me to say, I can't do it. It's too hard. No. In fact, what she does instead is in the midst of the discouragement, she finds just the faintest glimmer of light, the faintest thread that she can touch and says, if only, if only I can touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, the garment, um, at the end of the garment, on the corners, the Jews were required to, according to Numbers 15, to um, weave white and blue thread as tassels at the end of them. And those tassels were meant to remind them of all that God has done for them and to keep his commandments and not to go after other gods. And so this is what she's after. She's after the unique aspect of his garment, okay? So it's literally threads hanging from his garment, a tassel. And it's like, as if she's saying, I'm not just going to touch his cloak. I'm not just going to touch the edge of it. I'm not even just going to touch the tassel. If I could just touch yet a thread hanging from the tassel, just the merest contact, I will be made well. That's devotion, brothers and sisters. When we would so easily say, it's too hard, the devotion is, yeah, but if I just read a word of scripture, maybe I can be made well. If I just say a word of prayer, sometimes that's all it takes to start is if only just this. That's how we get out of discouragement and out of the mire of despair is just the word just. Um, you know how I didn't floss for many years of my life. <laughs> We're family can confess things. I do now. How did I, though, get... I hated flossing. It was like murder. In fact, it was. Every time you flossed, your gums bled and it hurt. And like, who does this? Brushing's enough. Well, one day I was like convinced, okay, flossing's pretty important. So um, how, did I, how did I make myself start flossing? Because there were so many nights, like, I just didn't want to do it. It's, it's so much work when you're not used to it. The floss doesn't stay on your fingers. And it's just, it's annoying. So what, um, what, um... I determined to do is I told myself every night, floss one tooth. That's all you have to do. So I'm serious. I There was maybe one or two nights when I did one tooth, but every other night, do you really think I flossed one tooth? While I was there, I'm like, well, okay. I'll do one. Yeah, might as well. Okay, I'm going to finish this thing off because who hates leaving things undone? I don't know. Some people do, but sometimes, brothers and sisters, when we're feeling swamped by crowds of discouragement and a hundred reasons why prayer can't happen right now or scripture is not important to us right now. Devotion just says, you know what though? Christ is so powerful that just a word, just a thread of the tassel of his garment and I'll be made well. Um, now when she says well, by the way, it's literally the word salvation. It is the word salvation, which is, wait, salvation, used everywhere else in scripture. You will have salvation. You'll be saved. It's that word. It's the only time Matthew uses that word in the, in the miracle stories. Um, and it may be that he actually wants us to see in this an illustration of our own salvation. But um, I just thought you should know that. So do with that whatever it means. Um, so the woman has devotion. Um, and so we should emulate the same devotion. All right, going on now to verse 27. 
uh, we see the two blind men are healed. And this is where we see the theme of vision. Now, they're also devoted. Notice that they, they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. Or if mercy becomes a repetitive word, sometimes you hear or use it so much. I liked how the translation we read said, pity us. Um, yeah, pity us, son of David. And he just, you know, doesn't do anything. He just enters the house. And they're probably like, where's he going? I don't know, Bob. <laughs> it sounds like I heard that door open. So they like go into the door together. And um, it's almost like, dude, like, answer us. But Jesus, when they follow him into the house, like there's devotion here. They weren't shaken off by this. They keep following him. And then Jesus turns and he says, I also think it's kind of cool. He enters the house, which is probably the house he was staying at with Peter. So it's probably his house. Um, so if that's the case, it's like they enter his house. You know, when we're devoted and we keep following Jesus all the way up to his house with his, with his family and worship together, there's something to that, right? Um, and they follow him to his house. And then he says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Okay. So, um, they're devoted. And then that leads to them having vision. It leads to them having vision. And here's what I, here's what I realize is sometimes we don't see Jesus as well as we want to because we don't seek him. Well, I don't, I don't get it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to read the Bible or this doesn't make sense to me. So I'm not going to do it. Or I, I don't see him. So whatever, I'll wait till he shows himself. Um, in faith, it works the other way. We have to seek him and then we will see him. It's, it's Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. Um, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. When will we see him? When we are all in the pursuit. And here the blind men are fully pursuing him till they corner him into the bedroom of the house, right? Probably in the far corner. And she's like, okay, what do you want me to do for you, <laughs> right? Um, and then they see. Their eyes are open and they see. This is how we see. So devotion leads us to vision. These two men get their sight. Now, contrast that down in verse 34 with the Pharisees. The Pharisees do not see. Because when Jesus is doing miracles right in front of them, what do they say? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. They don't deny something special is happening. They see what everyone else is seeing. But what they don't see is the power behind it. They don't see Jesus in the unusual. This is unusual to us. And he's not doing things the way we would expect the Messiah to do them. Messiahs don't touch lepers. Messiahs don't touch the dead. The, the little girl's dead. By touching her, he's supposed to be unclean for seven days. Because, well, when he touches her, she's alive. That's why Jesus gets out of that. But you can see from their perspective, this is not the expectation. We're seeing unusual things. It's not the way things are supposed to go. So we don't see Jesus here. We see demons here. I want us to be careful that as true disciples of Jesus, if we're pursuing him and seeing him, we should actually be able to see Jesus in places we don't expect him to be. And I, I just see this, it hurts me because I am somebody, anyone who's been here for any amount of time probably knows by now that I'm a lover of the whole church. Like I don't just, I am a Calvary Chapel Christian. It was what I was raised in. I don't know if I'd be Christian if I wasn't raised in the scriptures in Calvary, but um, I have grown up to love more than Calvary. 
Um, I love all of our brothers and sisters, and I love aspects. I don't love everything, okay? But I love aspects of every single Christian tradition because I can see Jesus in them. Um, what hurts me is when people refuse to see Jesus in other traditions because it's not what they expect or because it's unusual. And I hope we can grow up to be above that. Um, some people have complained, and I, I understand, but I just it hurts me because I hope that we can grow bigger than this. Some, some people just hear like, yeah, we, we, we pray with liturgy in our service. And that means sometimes we say this prayer every week. And, and they say it feels too Catholic or something, which baffles me because if you've ever been to a Catholic church, we're not doing anything that Catholic church does, but except receiving communion, which all Christians do. Um, but I just, it hurts me because it's like, well, we're not being fed here because it's too Catholic. Are you at the, well, okay, Jesus is here, but we have to shed our expectations and let him be surprising us in places we didn't expect. Um, what was I saying? I don't know where it's going. I'm kind of off the rail a little bit here. Um, hmm. When we follow Jesus, though, and we see him and we get him, what we start to do is we start to look for Jesus in people, and we start to look for Jesus in situations, rather than looking for errors in people and errors in situations. It's not what's wrong with and how can I do to correct them. It's, where's Jesus here? That's, that's what we really want to learn from that. So that's the vision. Our last theme is the mission. Um, the mission is in verse 35, and we see he's going around preaching, and then he says in verse 36, um, he saw the crowds, and he had compassion for them. Um, literally, compassion refers to his heart went out to them, or something about your heart is moved. The translation we said said it, within his heart he was moved with compa- compassion. Uh, France, one major commentator on Matthew said, translates it, his heart went out. But the point is not just you had feelings like, oh, look at the people. It's like you feel something, like the surge of emotion moving, right? You felt that before. Um, this is what he sees in the people. And um, harassed and helpless in the ESV. Uh, other ways to think of that is like dejected. Um, I, it's um, France who also says that they were exhausted and lack direction. And I like the translation we read before it said they were cast down. This is These are people that are discouraged, they're distraught, they're weary because they have no shepherd. And Jesus sees that. And he wants to lead these people. He wants to disciple these people. Put them on a path and a structure of life so that they're no longer downcast and trying to figure it out. They're given, they're given leadership. They're given example. They're brought into a way of life that changes everything about them. And that's what he sees. And he wants to shepherd them. So he says to his disciples, and like you heard in the other translation, literally it's he says to his disciples, not said. Um, and, and you'll notice there are points when the gospel Matthew does that goes into the, you call it the historical present. Uh, he says to the blind men and they say, we want to see, he says to his disciples, um, 
It's almost as if Matthew switches to that tense because he wants the church that's listening to the gospel to understand this isn't just a historical story. This part of the story is going directly to you. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. So we're not just talking about Jewish sheep that are lost. We're talking about the sheep in your immediate life. They are harassed. They are downcast. And there is a big harvest. Where are the laborers? So what does he tell us to do? Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. You may not know what to do about it. That's why Jesus said right there, pray. Pray that the Lord will send harvesters. Because had he said, do it like this, we would all have to conform to do it like that. When really, that's not how a harvest works. A harvest works with the giftings that God gives us. We go out into that field and we do what we're good at. We do what he's gifted us to do. And the way that Michael is called to labor in the harvest is not the way that Sam is called to labor in the harvest. And if Sam looks at Michael and says, why doesn't Michael do what I do? It's big on my heart that we do this. Sam is in the wrong He's, this is not a real conversation. I'm making it up. <laughs> Sam is in the wrong because he's not realizing that Michael's in prayer and God has called him into the harvest in a, to labor a different way. We cannot look at each other and judge how we're helping the harvest. We pray and God leads us to our place in it. So for example, I did some research. What exactly looked uh, did a harvest look like? And so I just want to use your imagination. What might this look like in life? In a harvest... There was cutting the grain with a sickle. There was gathering the grains into sheaves. That's bundling them up. There was threshing the grain with sledges. So that children would often, or just animals would pull heavy sledges, and sometimes the children would ride on them like a little sleigh ride, and they would crush all the grain so that the chaff and the grain, it would start to kind of be broken up. And then what they would do next is they would winnow it. You would put it on a blanket, and you'd throw it up into the air, and then the wind would blow the chaff away, and then the grain would fall down. Um, so that's winnowing and then there's sifting. So you pick up all the grains and then you sift it through a sifter and you let the dirt fall out and the grain stays there. Um, and then there's storing the grain for use later. And then there's offering the grain at the temple at Pentecost. That was the offering for the grain offerings. The first fruits are given to God as a tithe. There are so many roles in there. Where do you fit? Not everyone did all of that. The whole community went and did their certain parts of it. You're hacking down grain and other people are coming and gathering up. And when you're getting arms full, you bundle it up and then you pick up the rest that was hacked down. And right, there's different roles that are going on here. And then as these are bundled, other people are picking them up and taking them to the threshing floor. And then once they're threshed, people are taking them to the wind. And like, just pray to the Lord and he will send you into the harvest. Only if we have devotion for him. You're not going to care about others if you don't care about Jesus. Only if he gives us through our devotion vision to see, then you will see the needs around you in ways that Jesus saw it. And then we will hear his call to mission as we pray for what we see. So I want to close this back with what we're talking about. The worst word we can say to Jesus is no. The ruler said yes, even though she's dead. The woman with the blood flow said, yes, even though I should not be out here and it's too hard, there's too many people. The blind men said, yes, even though Jesus didn't seem to be answering them. Um, in fact, they literally say yes. Didn't you see that? Uh, they say to him, yes, oh, what do, you, what, do you believe I am able to, there it is. Do you believe I am able to do this? And they say to him, yes, yes Lord. Yes, Lord. What a simple statement. Yes, Lord. 
The entire gospel comes with a crashing wave into the world because Mary said to Gabriel, yes, Lord. The disciples became the apostles who helped found the church because when Jesus called them, they said, yes, Lord. These are healed because they say, yes, Lord. And so, do you believe that Jesus is able to do this? Do you believe that he's able, he's able to reach down and heal our deepest needs? Has Jesus asked you to remove the commotion from your life tonight? Has he urged you to push through the discouragement of the crowds? Has he asked you to join him in his harvest? Do you see that Jesus is able to meet your deepest need? Every single one of those questions and more should have one answer. Not maybe, Lord. Not to a point. Yes, Lord. We believe you can do this. Um, by the way, every time you guys say amen, you know, amen literally means yes, Lord. So when we pray, do you say amen? No, what you just said, you just before God said whatever was prayed, yes, Lord. When I prayed, yes, Lord. And it's that reminder as we approach him, it's always whatever's next, yes, Lord. Whatever has been, yes, Lord. Whatever's now in my life, Yes, Lord. Amen, amen, amen. So have you said, yes, Lord, in every part of your life? Because that is what a disciple looks like. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. For you are good and you love mankind. 